If you have your Bible, John chapter 5, 18 through 29 this morning, we are going to be looking at some of these outrageous claims of Jesus. Outrageous claims of Jesus. That's what we're discussing this morning. And as we begin, I want you to think back on some of the outrageous claims you've heard people make in your lifetime, okay? Outrageous being something shocking or unusually startling. A claim is stating something is the case, typically without providing proof, right? So maybe you've made outrageous claims before, and, and you've maybe heard outrageous claims, and I want to give you some of the outrageous claims I've heard, okay? I even heard these this past week. We were, in a confer- we were at a conference, so the pastors and our pastor wives this week had an opportunity to join together with the Acts 29 network, the, ch- the global network that we're a part of in Denver, Colorado for the week. And so we have people from all across North America. There was about 1,500 pastors and leaders and ministry teams all gathered together for worship. It was an awesome, awesome time. And out of the gates, I would just say, we're thankful. We are blessed to be a part of such an amazing family uh, that we get to see God doing amazing, amazing stuff all over the world. And we look forward to sharing more. So thanks for letting us be a part of that even this past week. And uh, it was such a gift for our team and refreshment. We feel refueled. Uh, But joining together with people from all across North America, I heard these outrageous claims made. Now, if you know anything about me, I'm originally from Texas, right? And, uh, And so as being someone, there's a lot of pride in being from Texas. You, you know about this? All right. Anybody, if you're from Texas, let's hear it. Okay. Yep. All right. You're like, wow, you guys stick together. That's right. All right. We're our own country. And um, now being originally from Texas, I've heard some outrageous claims. I hear these off, often. They cause you to take a step back. And uh, the first one being in and out is better than Whataburger. Okay, now if you don't know about Whataburger, all right, you, you, gotta, you gotta visit Whataburger. You can't make this claim, and there would be some who would wanna make this claim, and you can make a claim without showing any proof. People do that all the time. People say, in and out's better than Whataburger. And I'm like, you're a liar, all right? First of all, in and out doesn't have apple pie, okay? Fried apple pie, it's good stuff. Fancy ketchup. If you don't even know what fancy ketchup is, you haven't been to Whataburger, all right? Fancy ketchup, fancy ketchup, all right? If you're not filling a burger, they got patty melts. May not even know what a patty melt is, okay? But just to show you, listen to this claim. I found this in in an article. It said, after taking a bite of In-N-Out, sensory memories took hold of me, taking me back to beach days and the worry-free days of childhood. It wasn't fair. Whataburger didn't stand a chance. Of course, it's a good burger, but if there's something that being in the food industry has taught me, it's that food has the magical power to bring back memories from the moment it hits your lips. in and out wins. Now, here's the deal. That's an outrageous claim, Okay. Somebody from Texas, that's an outrageous claim. I'm like, I can tell you memories of sitting with my grandfather, all right? It it takes you back, sensory moments, okay? So maybe we need to get to the bottom of this. In and out, better than Whataburger? I don't think so. Outrageous claim. Second one, Kansas City barbecue is better than Texas barbecue. And all these outrageous claims have to do with food. 
That's the most important thing. I hear some claps. Obviously, they're ill-informed. Um, because what Kansas City Barbecue is really known for is their sauce, not even their barbecue. The fact that you have to claim what goes on the barbecue is, is a value tells me there's something wrong with the barbecue. Texas barbecue is known for one thing, salt and pepper. We don't need anything else to make it good, all right? Because the, the wood in which you smoke the meat actually gives it flavor. That's what is good about Texas barbecue. And in case you think like these outrageous claims are something you want to fight, just know the Texas slogan is don't mess with Texas, okay? Remember that, don't mess with Texas. Now, you hear these outrageous claims this morning, okay? They're, they are outrageous. They're outrageous. If you stand on one side of them, just know that you're wrong this morning, and, uh, and it's, there's going to be a moment to repent and come to Jesus at the end of our gathering, so remember that. But uh, depending on who you talk to or not, these aren't necessarily claims that will change your life, right? Uh, Jesus is going to make some claims in our passage today that we all have to deal with. The outrageous claims that Jesus makes in this passage will not allow you to stand in the middle. There is no neutral ground. If you're going, look, I don't really like In-N-Out. I don't really like in and or Whataburger. You can't, you could kind of stand in the middle of these claims and be like, hey, doesn't really matter. It's not going to change the end result of the day. We can move on about our life. And these are not claims that you can do that with. The claims that Jesus makes you have to decide. You're moved to a place of decision, and there is no neutral ground in the claims of Jesus. Jesus makes a lot of outrageous claims. All throughout the Gospel of John, and we're studying the Gospel of John right now, we're walking through the Gospel of John over a two-year period, and so here we are, I don't know, 10 weeks in, we're at John chapter 5, and Jesus has already made some outrageous claims. Let me remind us of a few of those. Uh, Jesus claimed he has always existed. Now, that's an outrageous claim to, to say that you've always existed. Before the creation of the universe, Jesus was. That's, that's an outrageous claim. Jesus claimed that he created the universe. All of creation was brought into the world through Jesus. Jesus spoke, and, and, and these, the creation came into existence. Jesus claimed... Uh, that if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. That's, that's an outrageous claim. That's, that's going to cause someone uh, to take a step back. That's going to cause someone to posture themselves differently. We're going to see as we continue uh, the Gospel of John, Jesus is going to claim that there's only one way to the Father. And that's an outrageous claim. And a claim where we talk about religious tolerance and we talk about being accepting of other beliefs and other religions, it's hard to understand, but we, we must posture. Either Jesus is the only way or there's multiple ways. And if there's multiple ways, then you don't stand in line with Jesus, you stand against Jesus. And so either we take him at his word and we believe that he is the only way to the Father or we stack ourselves against Jesus. And so Jesus makes some outrageous claims. And ultimately, the religious leaders, the Jews that, that Jesus is going to be speaking to here, they're trying to figure out what are we going to do with Jesus? 
And I think it's a great question that all of us have to wrestle with. What, what do we do with Jesus? What, what do we do with these outrageous claims that Jesus makes? What, how do we posture ourselves if there really is no neutral territory? And, and really, this was made famous by C.S. Lewis's uh, kind of three perspectives of, of viewing Jesus. And he talked about Jesus is either Lord, Jesus is either liar, or Jesus is either a lunatic. And you, you have to, because there's a lot of people that like, I think Jesus is a good guy, but you don't call him Lord. And Jesus can't be a good guy and make outrageous claims and not be Lord. If he, he's either delusioned, like the things that he makes up, he, he knows them to not be the truth, but yet he continues to speak them. And so he's a liar. He's a lunatic. He's sincere, but deluded, self-deceived. Someone suffering from some kind of hallucination. So, so he's a lunatic or he's Lord. He's Lord. And so we have to wrestle with that. Who is Jesus? What do we do with Jesus? You must either reject the claims of Jesus or receive the claims of Jesus. And that's what the Jews are wrestling with in this passage. What do we do with Jesus and his claims? They're having to figure out what to do. J.C. Ryle, famous uh, author, pastor, theologian, says, Nowhere else in the Gospels, nowhere else in the Gospels, do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his Messiahship as we find in this discourse, referring to this passage that we're looking at. Nowhere else do we see such a formal, systematic discourse is what we, we see here. Uh, another theologian says he, he entitled this section of Scripture, Jesus makes his tremendous claims. And so that's, that's where we're, we're at. And that's, we're having to ask ourselves, what do we do with Jesus? Now, let me give you some of the background. If you're jumping in this morning, you're like, Jesus is just coming on the scene, making outrageous claims. No, there's some, there's some history. There's some, some things going on. Some events have kind of led up to this moment. And Jesus has just healed a man that has been paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus walked into the pool of Bethesda, looks around, there's the multitudes. He sees one man who has been there a long time and his condition was not well. And he comes to the man and he asks the man, do you want to be made well? And the man repeats, I have, I have no way to, to get to the water. I have no way to, to, to climb into the water to be healed. And Jesus says, that's all I need is someone to say, I can't. And Jesus can. And Jesus in that moment heals him. He says, pick up your mat and walk. And so here this man who has been crippled for 38 years takes his mat and he begins to walk out of the pool of Bethesda. And he encounters some religious leaders, some Jews, where they begin to question him. They don't begin to question him towards the miraculousness of this event. They begin to question him based on who is it that caused you to pick up your mat and walk? Why is it that you're doing this on the Sabbath? And like, leave it up to religious people to ruin like an awesome moment, right? Like here it is, the most celebratory of this moment of this guy's life. And all the religious leaders can see is like, hey, don't you know you're breaking the law? And you're like, man, you're totally missing the point. 
And, and here this man is celebratory and Jesus approaches him. He didn't know who the man was who healed him initially. And then Jesus finds the man later on and says, see, you're made well. And, and then that guy goes back and says, hey, if you're wondering who the guy was who healed me, his name is Jesus. And then the religious leaders are like, well, we, we're going to hate Jesus then. And we're going to persecute him. And so that's where we kind of get to our text. In verse 18, it says, this was why... Why? Because Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. Jesus caused this man to pick up his mat and walk. We read in John chapter 5, verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so the fact is, Jesus made a claim, and because he made a claim, the the religious leaders are going, we want to kill him. There's no neutral ground here. It's not like, hey, you know, I think he's a good guy. No, he's making himself equal with God. He's blaspheming. He's he's causing people to break the law on the Sabbath. We're out to kill this guy. These outrageous claims. And you can imagine in this moment, because we talked about last week, Jesus wasn't truly uh, breaking the Sabbath. Really what happened, the religious leaders kind of up the ante on what it meant to follow the religious rules. And these weren't truly the breaking of law. And what Jesus could have done is Jesus could have engaged in discourse at that moment of going, hey, let me tell you like why this really isn't the Sabbath. And I love it because he totally dismisses the argument altogether. They come to him like, look, you're, you're making yourself equal with God. You're breaking the Sabbath. He could have just engaged in this topic of, of Sabbath and what it means to worship on the Sabbath and what it means to work on the Sabbath. He doesn't. He just goes on to make more outrageous claims. Don't mess with Jesus, all right? That's a new t-shirt slogan. Here's what he says. So Jesus said to them, truly, 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 truly. And we're gonna talk about that in a moment, okay? Truly, truly uh, literally means like underline this, this is important. That's kind of what he's kind of emphasizing in this text. And so what I want you to see what Jesus is going to do, and this is kind of like, the big picture of what's happening in this, Jesus is revealing some true things about himself. Now, there are some, some, as we look back last week, we see the healing of this man, and that's significant. And I, I've heard from many of you, like, the significance. We talked about internal healing. We talked about external healing. We talked about eternal healing and, and really wrestling between those perspectives. And and we asked this, our, ourselves the question, why in the world would he walk into the multitudes and have the power to heal and only heal one? And, and here's what I want you to see. The big picture of what Jesus is trying to do, and I don't have time to unravel this and unfold this, but Jesus, the main thing, now here's, if you're the man who's been paralyzed for 38 years of your life, you're going, this is a significant event. Now, What Jesus is doing is saying, what he's doing is more significant. And and what I want you to see is what is known as the providence of God. Something bigger is at play here than just the healing of this man, just this engagement or discourse that he's having with the Jewish leaders. Something bigger is at play. And John Piper in his new book, we were given like a a five, six hundred, seven hundred thousand, I don't know. It's big. It's like a Bible. John Piper authored it entitled Providence. I started reading it, um, and he says this in the introduction. 
John Piper in his new book, Providence, says, God is always doing 10,000 things in every act of providence. If you were with us like five years ago, uh, I quoted something as we were walking through, I think it was Jonah, where God is always doing 10,000 things and we might only be aware of three of them. That was something that really stuck with our church and we've talked about. He says it similarly here. He says, God is always doing 10,000 things in every act of providence. And he said, that's an understatement. Each of those 10,000 things is intended, which means God has millions and millions of goals every hour, and he accomplishes all of them, and we don't even know most of them. And that too is an understatement. And it's this idea of going, we don't understand the full nature of what's happening here, but Jesus is trying to reveal himself. Because if we go back to remember the purpose of John, the gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 31, I've written these things to you so that you may believe and that by believing you might have life in his name. And that's where he's, he's revealing something about himself. And so the three claims, and I'll give these to you as, uh, as introduction, the three claims that Jesus is going to make, and these are three outrageous claims, have to do with relationship, revelation, and resurrection. Relationship, revelation, resurrection, okay? Um, let's start with relationship. There are three truly, truly statements in this passage, Okay? Truly, truly, like I said, means, hey, listen, I'm about to make an outrageous claim, okay? If you want to remember that and you read through the Gospel of John, everywhere he, he says, truly, truly. Now, Jesus always speaks the truth. He is truth. He always speaks the truth, but he's saying, this is really truth, okay? Listen up, highlight it, underline it. I'm about to make an outrageous claim. Remember that. That's important. Because there should be an end to all doubt. The, what Charles Spurgeon says, there should be an end to all doubt when Jesus says truly, truly. Because this is like we are, we are brought back in seasons of doubt. We have to come back to places where truth is found. We're going to wrestle with these things. These are outrageous claims. All right? So as you hear them this morning, we, we got to wrestle with these claims of Jesus. But... We need to come back to them as foundational. They're places of truth. In seasons of doubt, come back here. Relationship. Jesus, what he is about to do is Jesus' name dropping. You ever been around somebody who name drops? They, they want to tell you how important they are uh, by telling you who they know. Right? Now, Jesus is really the only one who can truly name drop. Because what Jesus is saying is, I have value. I have value because God is my father. And, there, and he's making himself, not only is God my father, but he's equal with the father. And so there's a sense of, there, there, there's this idea of equality between God the father and God the son. And him speaking that would have been an outrageous claim. The relationship that Jesus has with the father is an outrageous claim. He's name dropping. And rightfully so, he, he does that. He even calls God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but what only sees the father doing. So what does he say in that? He says, I know what the father's doing, which is an outrageous claim. 
this relationship that he has, he, he knows what the Father is doing. He has a relationship. He has such an affectionate, he lives in such community with the Father that he knows exactly what the Father is doing. And if you've ever like played the game copycat and you mimic, this is, Jesus says, he, he doesn't do some of what, he only does what the Father is doing. So it is an exact picture when we see Jesus we see the Father. We want to know God the Father, we look to Jesus. Jesus is making an outrageous claim because Jesus is identifying himself with the Father. So in this idea, Jesus is looking to God. God's the pace setter. You ever ran in a marathon and someone, you know, who is ungodly healthy and they're running with like a six-minute mile pace, Okay. And you're going, who in the world can do that for 26.2 miles? It's crazy, right? And they're running as a pace setter. They're they're the ones setting the pace. So you just get in line. If you're running a six-minute mile, you get behind the six-minute mile mile pace. I'm back with the 12-minute mile pacers, okay? And But there's still somebody's a pace setter, somebody in the 12-minute mile. They're pace setters too, right? And you get in line, and they're setting the pace for you. And so you just follow them. And what Jesus is saying is God is the pace setter. God instructs me. God is giving wisdom as to every move that I make. And it's a picture. Do, I ask us the question, do we walk in that way? Because in 1 John chapter 2, verse 5 through 6, it says, But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so Jesus is taking his, his pace from God the Father. And what does that passage say that we are to do? We're to take our pace from Jesus. We're to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so th- this is the relationship. And he makes this outrageous claim. Not only does he, he say that everything the Father does, I do. But he also goes on to say that the Father loves him. Verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. The Father loves the Son. What an affectionate statement. Just the love that the Father has for Jesus. And this is a, this is a, a full disclosure of the relationship between far, Father and Son. And the present tense the way that it's written here in the Greek tense, it's an ongoing, perfect, it is an always affectionate relationship. It, he never ceases to love the Son. It is an ongoing, continuous, affectionate relationship. If we ask, like, why in the world would the Son commit to walk this path? It's out of the motivation of the Father loving him. The way in which you and I walk, it's out of this ongoing affectionate relationship. And you go, well, he loves Jesus that much, but what about me? And, and I just want to invite you into the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 26, where Jesus is praying to God the Father, and he says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known 
that the love with which you have loved me, that ongoing, continuous, affectionate love that God the Father has for Jesus, Jesus is praying that that love with which you have loved me, that it may be in them. Did you know that the, the motivational love that existed in the life of Jesus from God the Father, Jesus is praying that that would exist in us. He's making this outrageous claim of someone who seems to be so out of works with the religious culture of that time. Jesus is going, the Father loves me. The Father loves me. I'm in relationship with the Father. I'm equal with the Father. Verse 21, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. And it's interesting, even as we read this, you got to notice the significance to whom he will. People cannot command the miracle. The son gives life where he chooses, not where people choose. That's the correct order. That's the biblical order. That's the providence and sovereignty of God on display. God gives to whom he chooses. And there's a lot of wrestling even in that text that we have to wrestle with. But as a son of God, as someone loved by God, you're going to be hated by outsiders. And that's the nature. When, when he talks about this equality with God, this relationship with God, the love of God, the affectionate, uh, continuous, ongoing relationship with his son, this, this is causing those Jewish leaders to step back. This is an outrageous claim, okay? Now, hang on. We're going to keep moving through. The revelation. Not only does he make an a outrageous claim about the relationship, he makes an outrageous claim about revelation. He says in this passage, um, verse 20, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. So let me show you the order of events that, that's happening here. Jesus is loved by the Father. The Father loves Jesus. Jesus is doing only what the Father shows him. So the Father is showing him things, and Jesus is then doing them. And it says that the Father is going to show him even more miraculous things. He's going to reveal even more miraculous things. And Jesus is then going to do them. Why? So that the people that he's talking to may marvel. They're going to be made to be in awe. They're going to be made to posture themselves in wonder. And this is where I think Jesus is beginning to work on some of that. Like again, there's no neutral ground. You're either for Jesus or against Jesus. And in this moment, he's saying, there's going to be some miraculous. There's going to be some revealing of the true supernatural power of God in things that he brings about into the world that's going to cause people to marvel, that's going to cause them to step back, that's going to move them from a place of unbelief to belief. And that's what revelation does. Revelation is a surprising and previously unknown fact. And it's made known in a dramatic way. So it's like Jesus is going to be made known in a dramatic way so that you would marvel and honor him. 
For the Father judges no one, but gives, has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now, that statement in and of itself is going to be challenging. Because they, they love God the Father, but they don't accept Jesus as Messiah. And he's saying, if you love God the Father and you honor God the Father, that the same honor that you give God the Father, you are to give to me. And to honor means to hold something in, in value. To honor something means to give a value, something, give weight to something, that you would cause that thing to be significant. Where we talked about Jesus being magnified this morning. We want Jesus to be magnified. We want Jesus to be honored in our life, that Jesus would be seen of value. When people see you, this is one of the calls, this is one of the commandments of this text, is that Jesus would be honored. Do people, when they look at your life, do they see and go, Jesus is being honored? Do they see Jesus being of value to you? Does Jesus in your life make any difference in the decisions that you make and how you wake up on Monday morning and how you go to work and how you go to school and how you deal with relationships? Does, does being a follower of Jesus and how you honor him change the way that you live? And so he's saying that there is going to be revelation and you might ask, well, what has that been in my life? And uh, I just, I walked, we were walking out of the Smith's grocery store yesterday, and I kind of looked up at the mountains. And I, I don't know if you've noticed, but the mountains have become colorful. And it may seem like insignificant, but I look at this and I go, I feel like every night I go to sleep and God's going, you know what, I'm just going to touch up this tree here and touch up this tree here and you look up and it's brilliant. For what purpose? Other than for us to go, wow. Food. I talk a lot about food, right? Whataburger. Why in the world does it taste so good? It could just like, we don't need food to taste good. Food could just we take of it, we get the whatever nourishment or lack of nourishment, Whataburger, that it provides or doesn't provide, but he made certain foods to have taste. I, I think of his sustaining of the universe, the sustaining of the distance of the sun. If you've ever looked into all the scientific data, if it was so many inches closer, but so many inches further away, we'd freeze to death, we'd burn up, you know, I mean, all of these things kept in motion for as long as mankind has walked the face of this planet. To marvel, to think about the things that we see, our human bodies, the fact that there is blood, our heart is pumping and blood is pumping all over our body to give life. It's crazy. The revelation of God is seen. In Psalm 19.1, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. They're pouring forth speech. We're to look in all of creation. We see this beautiful revelation of all that God is doing, that all is God. And, and it says not only that, but there's going to be significant works. And I've seen lives changed. I've seen in my lifetime, true physical healing. 
I've seen in my lifetime true spiritual healing, hearts of stone made into hearts of flesh, hearts being softened. All for what purpose? Well, again, I think if you're the the man who's been 38 years crippled, to to be given life, but not only providence, he's doing 10,000 things. There's, There's much more at play here so that mankind would look to God and go, wow, there's no one like him. It's the revelation. He's making an outrageous claim, right? Charles Spurgeon says, does it not sometimes seem to you to be impossible that there may be a such and such grievously ungodly man and he could be converted? But why impossible with him who can raise the dead? Does it seem impossible that you could ever be supported through your present trouble? But how impossible with him who can make dry bones live? It appears improbable at times that your corruptions should ever be cleansed away and that you should be perfect and and without spot. But why so? He who is able to present tens of thousands of bodies before his throne who have long slept, talking about the resurrection that is to come in this passage, what can he not accomplish within his people? Oh, doubt no more, and let not even the greatest wonders of his love, his grace, his power, his glory cause you to marvel unbelievingly, but rather say, as each new prodigy of his divine power rises before you, I expected this of such of one as he is. There's an expectation. So you're like, what is he telling? What's the outrageous claim here in terms of revelation? Here's what it is. He just told the religious leaders, the Jews, nothing is impossible. Now, I guarantee if you meet somebody on the street and he says that, you're going to doubt, right? That's why Jesus is the one who's making this claim. Jesus is the one and he's come to reveal nothing is impossible. The things that you think are impossible, Jesus is going to do them so that you would marvel. That's the second claim. The third claim has to do with the resurrection. Now, there's two different types of resurrection spoken about in this passage. The first one is a spiritual resurrection, given of new life. This kind of takes us back to John chapter 3, where Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus, and he says, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand the spiritual. He's kind of wrestling with physical, and he says, "You um, you know, I was born... Myself, 41 years ago, what does that mean to be born again? And he talks about it being born of spirit and of water, and so it's a new birth. And so it's this idea of spiritual, like that you've been given life, spiritual life. And and he talks about that in this passage, that whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. And this isn't life that is to come, this is life that you're to have right now. So as a follower of Jesus, you're not awaiting eternal life. You're not waiting for life in the future. It's right now, in the present, in the moment, you can have eternal life. That's what Jesus is going to say in verse 25. Truly, truly, take note. This is the truth. Listen up. I'm about to make an outrageous claim. An hour is coming and it's now here. And so there's an experience, there's an understanding of it right here and now, and it's also coming. So 
we're experiencing a foretaste of that, which I, I said last week, that we're experiencing just the beginnings of what Jesus is going to do. And so he says, not only will you have eternal life, but you already have it. You already have it. You already do. But he's also going to be talking about resurrection from the dead. So not just spiritually dead, but physically dead. How many of you know that 10 out of 10 people die? Okay, right? 100%. You know, if there's ever a great statistic, 100% of us are going to die. And this text has a lot about death. There's a lot of, of, thing, of, of reasons for many people to, to fear death. And Jesus speaks to that, and Jesus is going to make, this is probably of the three, one of the most outrageous claims that Jesus makes here in verse 25. It says, an hour is coming, is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Now, we don't know what this looks like, okay? We know of Jesus raising life with Jairus' daughter, and we know that Jesus raised the life of Lazarus. And he yelled in, Lazarus, come out. So I don't know if he's going to call us one by one, you know, but someday we will return to dust. We will be put in the ground. This is the outcome. 100% of us, this is where we're going unless Jesus returns. We're all going to die. And in our grave, Jesus is going to call all to rise. So here's what's interesting. Tony Morita, I just heard him speak about this passage. And Tony Morita says, you can ignore the voice of Jesus right now. You can attempt to stand in neutral territory right now, but one day we will stand before Jesus. We will be called out of the tomb by the voice of Jesus. Talk about a powerful voice, right? Called out of the tomb by the voice of Jesus and somehow, some way, our bodies will come before Jesus. And in that moment, we will no longer be able to ignore him. There's two outcomes. One, it says there will be people who experience life. And there will be people who experience judgment. There's no neutral territory. In that moment, we will not be able to ignore the voice of Jesus. We can put it off. This passage talks over and over and over again about hearing, about hearing, about hearing. And we can distract ourselves. We can fill our lives with things that don't enable us to hear. But there will come a day where we stand before him where all will hear and all will give an account and all will speak. Some will face life, be given life, and some will face judgment. We might want to know where we stand, right? Like we might want to know what's going to happen. For as the father has life in himself, so he's granted the son also to have life in himself. You cannot give what you do not have. We don't have life in ourselves. We're dependent upon life, right? You go to the doctor, you get lab work done, you exercise. Why? Because you have no control whether you live or whether you die or whether your heart keeps pumping, it may stop five minutes from now. I pray to God it doesn't. I hope by God's grace, he gives us much more life to experience. But we don't have life in our hands. It's not ours to give. We can't give life. Life belongs to Jesus. And so because life belongs to Jesus, it's his to give. You cannot give what you do not have. 
For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. All. In the Greek, it means all. Everyone. Everyone will hear his voice. Everyone will come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, here's the thing. We read that last line and it, it, posture, it postures us to think that, well, it's about doing good. It's about works. And it's important for me to, to clarify this, right? Um, if, if I just, I, I rode in, in the car with someone the other day and it's a guy I just met and we started talking about faith, and he asked me what I do for a living. I told him I was a pastor, and we got in conversation and of why he no longer attends church, and he believes that if you just live a good moral life and you do good in your life, then uh, that's going to be good enough. And the question is, is how good is good enough? How good? do I? There, there's never a line. What is that line? How good is good enough? And this is not the standard by which we're judged on. God is holy, which means he is perfect, which means when Isaiah was brought face to face with the identity of of the Lord, it says he fell to his knees and said, I'm a man of unclean lips. No one is going to stand before Jesus and quote their good works because you see the perfection of Jesus, you immediately are judged. You face judgment. And you're going, I'm a, I'm a man, I'm a woman of unclean lips. But Jesus has given us a way to be cleansed. And this idea of producing good it's, is what does your life produce? Tim Keller says, your deeds, your good works are an index to your heart. Okay? When you open a book, there's an index, right? And the index tells me, This is what I'm going to find in that book. And your deeds are an index to your heart. The fruit on a tree that is produced, it doesn't give the tree life, but the fruit on the tree reveals that the tree is alive. I just planted four trees in my yard, thinking long term here, right? They're not going to be full grown. It's going to be like 20 years to see these, these things grow. And, you know, thinking long-term, I was a little concerned when I walked out the other day and the leaves were falling off. And I go, really? It's already over. I totally run these trees. And so I got online and I was like, did I just kill my trees? This is concerning. And so I, I looked and they said, if, if you scratch the bark and the bark is still green, that it's evidence that there's still life. And so I did that. I scratched the bark on the tree, and sure enough, it was still green underneath. There was a green color giving evidence that the tree is alive. And what Jesus is saying in this passage, he's saying that there are going to be signs of life. There's going to be evidence of life. There's going to be evidence that your life has been resurrected and that when you face Jesus, It's going to be one of life, not judgment. See, the good works that you have produced in your life are evidence of His salvation in our life and His saving work 
in life. I heard a statistic this last week that 60% of people believe there is a heaven. 30% of people believe in hell. And only 1% of people believe they're actually going there. This is alarming. This is alarming. And it's right for us in this text when we hear these outrageous claims of Jesus that we need to do some self-examination. What's true of, of you? And so I'm going to move into a, a time of response, and I'm going to invite our prayer team to come to each one of the four tables around the room. And our prayer team is just going to be here to pray for you this morning, to encourage you, to help wrestle with, with you some things maybe you're wrestling with this morning. They're here as a gift to you, to serve you, to walk with you. But we got to take a moment, and I don't want us to rush past this, and so we, we're kind of separating our response time from our communion time this morning, because I want you to truly examine your life. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 is alarming. It says, those who die apart from the life-giving work of Jesus, it says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, away from the one who gives life. But Jesus hasn't left us there. And that's the good news of the gospel that we get to come and hear and remember and reflect. That Jesus knows he's not alarmed. He's not taken back by your sin. He's like, oh man, there they are again, sinning again. That's why he died. That's why he went to the cross. Jesus was persecuted, crushed, crucified for our sins and for the forgiveness of sins so that we might have life. He's come so that one day we don't face judgment, that we have the blood of Jesus purifying us, cleansing us. And so three questions that I think surface out of the text this morning. Because it says, those who hear, those who hear, those who hear. Let me ask you this morning, are you hearing? Are you hearing from Jesus? Are you hearing these life-giving words, these warnings, the proclamation that Jesus makes? Nothing's impossible for him. He has a relationship with the Father that you, can, to, you, to, you too can possess. You can have a relationship with the Father in that way. That you can have life? Are you hearing? Are you believing? The text goes on, are you believing? Do you believe these things? Do you believe them to be true? There's no neutral ground. Do you believe them to be true? And are you honoring? Are you honoring him? Do you hold Jesus and give him the value and honor that he deserves this morning? I'm going to pray for us this morning, and then I'm going to invite us all to stand, and we're going to sing. Our prayer team is going to remain in place, and if there's encouragement or there's prayer, if you're just saying, hey, I just want to have ears that hear. I want to believe. Help me in my unbelief. I want to honor Jesus with my life. If you want people to pray for you in those things, our prayer team's in place. If you're here today and going, hey, I don't want to face judgment. 
I want to turn and follow Jesus. I want to honor Jesus. I want to put my faith in Jesus this morning. Our prayer team can help you and lead you to what it means to walk in relationship and follow Jesus. And in the same way Jesus invited people, come and follow me, he's invited all of you this morning to come and follow him. Will you take him at his word, believe his claims, hear his claims, and honor him and posture yourself for who he truly is this morning? Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to hear, even right now, in the quietness of this moment, help us to hear what you're calling us to. Help us to believe this morning. Lord, in many ways, we're all unbelievers. We operate as unbelievers. We live the days of our life not believing certain aspects of your truth. I pray for one, that we would believe that nothing is impossible for you that you're going to do mighty works so that we might be in awe and wonder. And Lord, help us to honor you. Help us to believe these claims about you, that you, have a, you are equal with the Father, you have a relationship with the Father. You're going to reveal the works of the Father and you're going to resurrect life. Help us to believe these things about you and rightfully honor you with our lives. Tomorrow when we wake up and we go about our week, that we would honor you. And in honoring you, we would honor the Father. Lord, help us in the next few moments as we sing, as we worship, as we respond. Help us be moved to a place of action. We pray in the name of Jesus that we would honor you with all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen.